How do you understand suffering? How do you respond to suffering? What is your typical response to suffering? What's the, the mindset that you have in suffering? Is it, I'm getting punished for something that I did wrong? Is it, this is awful, I need to do everything in my power to avoid this? It seems to be a popular perspective in our society today to avoid suffering at all costs, right? We have comfort food. We have comfort in and sweets. We have comfort zones. You know what we don't have? Suffering in and sweets. <laughs> we don't have suffering zones, right? So you don't want to do something, you might say, it's not in my comfort zone. I might approach on my comfort. We don't have suffering food. We have comfort food. We have medication called pain meds. And what we mean by that is not, this is medication that will give you pain. <laughs> no one wants that. This is medication that will relieve pain. I wonder why we call it pain meds, not comfort pills or, <laughs> that's probably a weird title anyways, so relief pills. Many of us, when we experience negative feelings associated with suffering, of pain, which in the Christian faith, we understand suffering to be an inevitable part of life in a broken world, right? But those who might not be in our faith, they might turn to medication to relieve the suffering they might feel, whether physical or mental. The National Center for Health Statistic notes that the rate of antidepressant use in this country has increased throughout the decades. It's only going up. A recent study in the United States showed there was in fact a 21% increase in the number of antidepressants, anti-anxiety, and anti-insomnia prescriptions during the pandemic. Particular spike in March 2020. And it shows that antidepressant use is also shown to increase with age. <laughs> it's like we're not getting better at this, right? The Greek philosopher Aristotle once said, the aim of the wise is not to secure pleasure, but to avoid pain. Isn't that fascinating? Seems like that thought, that perspective, that idea has, it's still so prevalent in our society today. And Aristotle said this. So it's about avoiding pain, suffering. You face suffering and pain, you, you want to avoid it. Maybe you have more of a perspective like Woody Allen. Woody Allen so cheerfully said, life is full of misery, loneliness and suffering, and it's all over much too soon. <laughs> what, a, what a positive perspective, Woody. This is a common refrain. And maybe, maybe no one has written about it so eloquently as the American writer and poet of the 1800s, Edgar Allan Poe. He said this, I have absolutely no pleasure in the stimulants in which I sometimes so madly indulge. It has not been in the pursuit of pleasure that I have periled life and reputation and reason. It has been the desperate attempt to escape from torturing memories, from a sense of insupportable loneliness and a dread of some strange impending doom. This past weekend, Steph and I were traveling to Austin, Texas. I was speaking at a church that supports us financially there and we were traveling back on Monday. And the person who was giving us a ride from our hotel to the, to the church was a longtime member at the church, longtime resident of Austin. He said, Austin Airport, it's small, it's usually slow. You know, we could probably get there an hour and a half before and you'll be totally fine. So what do we do? We, we don't know Austin. We've been there twice in our life. We trust this guy. Well, as we pull up to the airport, as you get into the departures lane, it's just a line of cars. And it's just crawling forward 
to the curb. <laughs> and uh, as we were sitting there, the guy said, whoa, huh, I've never seen this before. And we, we see as we're sitting in the line of departures, someone gets out of their car, leaves the door open, and just starts sprinting to the curb. <laughs> and Stephen and I kind of just laugh, like, <laughs> wow, never seen this before. And he's like, hmm, that's really strange. What are you saying? Well, when we finally get up to the curb, we see that the line out of the airport has wrapped all the way down the curb and back twice. And people in line have said, yeah, I've been waiting in this line for two hours. The, the TSA line, just the TSA line was a two to four hour wait. So need to say, we, we missed our flight. <laughs> we didn't make it. There was a line to, to check your bag in. That was, the whole airport was crazy. And we later found out that there was like three events that all coincided that one weekend in Austin and they had just overbooked. There were so many people in the airport. It was like uh, reading news articles about it. People were talking about an apocalypse. People were leaving rental cars literally in the departure lane, just leaving their rental cars and running to the curb. It created this madness. And as we were sitting there on the line, you know, we waited there about an hour and our flight was called and left and we like, okay, we gotta find a, another way to get home, another flight. Every, almost every person when they were dropped off, when they finally made it to that curb and they got out of their van or their car had the same look on their face, a look of total despair. <laughs> it's like you could see the hope in their eyes just leave as they saw the line and they realized I'm gonna miss my flight. What am I gonna do next? I'm gonna be waiting here for hours. The line for the clear, you know, the clear company that allows you to skip the TSA lines, that was, there was a line all the way out as people were trying to, to beat the, the rest of the crowds as people were waiting in the TSA line. People were trying to escape this sense of suffering and pain. Don't want to wait here outside for hours. You guys know a guy named Frederick Nietzsche's? Nietzsche? He said this, to live is to suffer, to survive is to find some meaning in the suffering. I think this is what we see the Apostle Paul doing in our text this morning. Is there's not only this perspective that many have of you can seek to escape, avoid suffering. You can kind of embrace it in this despair, doom and gloom. Life is the worst. Life is just full of misery and pain like Woody Allen. Or you can do what Christians do in suffering and that's a strange thing. That's called rejoicing. So Paul's in prison. He's writing a letter to the Colossians and he says this line. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That's strange, isn't it? And this is not the first time Paul wrote this. It wasn't like, okay, he's in prison. Maybe he's a little mal, malnourished, the right word? Malnourished. He hasn't had a lot of water. Maybe he's not thinking straight. Is he really rejoicing in his suffering? In the letter to the Romans, Paul writes this, Romans 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Then he says in Philippians, he's just writing to the Philippians, you know, he's saying, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. And we all say, yes, suffering. I not only get to believe in Jesus, but I get to suffer for him. We do that. No, we don't, because that's strange to us. It's not, it's, that's not natural. Jesus' half-brother James wrote this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face 
when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So Paul's saying suffering for the sake of others is something that I rejoice in. We see suffering is it's a grace given from Jesus. Like you, you don't only get to believe, but you get to suffer for him. And suffering does something in our life. It produces character and hope and steadfastness and endurance. And not only does suffering do these things for Paul and he encourages us as the church to think through suffering in this way, Paul says this in verse 24, which I still don't quite get, honestly, what he says in this verse. But he's talking about sharing. He views suffering as sharing in the very life of Jesus himself. Look what he says, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Now, who, as I read that right now, would say, Daniel, I can explain that to you really clearly. Just let me, let me come forward. I can explain that. Anyone? I don't still kind of get it. And as I was studying, I was reading commentaries. So many different perspectives are, are ways that this might be understood or applied. And when I ever come across a verse that's confusing to me, I, I find it helpful sometimes to look at different translations. I know the Bible has different translations or there's different perspectives or uh, you know, viewpoints that translators might have into how the Bible is translated. So some, like you know, King James or New King James or ESV or New American Standard, they want to say, what was that word in the Greek or the Hebrew? And, and what's the exact translation of that word? Where others, you might say they're more not word for word, but a more thought for thought. So they're trying to say, what's the thought in the Greek and the Hebrew? And what English phrase best captures that thought? And thought for thought can be a little more easy to read. So this is where we have New Living Translation, New International Version. These are kind of in the thought for thought camp. So I like to look at those two and see, does another way a translation you know, helps me, the way they word it, does that provide some more insight into something that I'm not understanding? Okay, so New American Standard Bible, this says this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am supplementing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in behalf of his body, which is the church. So New American Standard is not saying filling up, it's saying supplementing. Okay, what about New Living Translation? On this side of the translation, the, the thought for thought. It says, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the suffering of Christ that continue for his body, the church. That makes a little more sense to me, doesn't it? How about the Amplified Version? Paul writes, now I rejoice in my sufferings on your behalf and in my own body, I supplement whatever is lacking on our part of Christ's afflictions on behalf of his body, which is the church. That to me is even a little more helpful. So what is Paul saying here? He's not saying Christ's death, Christ's suffering on the cross is insufficient. Because it sounds like that at first, doesn't it? It sounds like he's taking a slight at Christ, taking a shot at his afflictions as if his suffering is not enough. Paul is saying what is lacking in Christ's afflictions was the future suffering of all who, like Paul, will experience great affliction for the sake of the gospel, as Paul describes. So Paul is saying that he's doing his part in following the pattern of Jesus' suffering that is for the benefit of Jesus' body, the church. It's just clear as mud now. Paul saw the sufferings of Christ not only as the atoning sacrifice, not only as the payment for sin, but as the pattern of life for the church. You guys with me? Bishop N.T. Wright says it like this in his commentary on Colossians. 
Paul is not adding to the achievement of Calvary. The word afflictions in the Greek is never, in fact, used of the cross. He is merely putting into practice the principle of which Calvary was, in one sense, the supreme outworking. He understands the vocation of the church as being to suffer. He does not arrogate this privilege to himself as though he were independent of Christ, but rightly sees that it is precisely because it is Christ and so is he. This is what it means when he writes of suffering with Christ or sharing the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. This, I think, shows for me as I was reading this, wow, I don't really understand suffering. Suffering with Christ, sharing in the suffering, suffering as a Christian. I learned this week that in Jewish thought, there was thought to be a, a predetermined amount of suffering to be endured by God's people before the end of the world that is. So before the completion of time, before the end of the age, there is to be a set amount of suffering. And Paul might be thinking of what is lacking as I was kind of filling up that suffering uh, for Christ's body, for the church, until Jesus would come again. But, but think about that. He's, he's talking about suffering on behalf of Jesus as supplementing, filling up, sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And he's rejoicing in these sufferings. He's rejoicing because he's suffering for the sake of the Colossians. Paul's suffering, his persecution, his imprisonment, it benefited the church by promoting and he's writing letters and the gospel is being advanced as he's suffering. The gospel is going forth. So he's rejoicing in that. In other words, Paul isn't sitting in prison writing this letter to the Colossians saying, oh, woe is me, boo-hoo, I'm in prison. <laughs> this is the worst. He's not you know, throwing up tweets about how awful his life is. Does anyone tweet? Kind of seems like an older thing. Maybe not. Memeing? We, we might meme. We might send a sweet gif of our suffering. Please, Colossians, come help me and save me out of this mess. He's not saying this. He's saying, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That is a perspective of love and self-sacrifice, isn't it? He says this, of this very body of the church, Paul became a minister. Minister means servant according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and iterations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Anyone in here enjoy mystery films, mystery novels? Allie, yeah, a couple. In a mystery novel, you know, the kind of whodunit, right? The premise of the story is there's this conflict and the conflict rises and builds until the conflict is resolved when we find out whodunit, right? A murder mystery, who was the murderer? How do they do it? Why do they do it? This is all revealed in this mystery. And Paul's saying that throughout church history, throughout the, the history of the people of God, there was this mystery of how would God restore what, what is the plan of God for his people? How is he going to bring about redemption and restoration? And Paul is saying that this mystery is not a series of events. It's not some sort of secret ingredients, a timetable. Paul is saying this mystery is a person, Christ. He has revealed him. And it was something that God had to reveal. It was something that was previously hidden in, in the ages. The plan also to include not only ethnic Jews, not only children of Abraham, but Gentiles. This mystery, this 
And this hope, it isn't some sort of, you know, I, I, it's out there for me to attain. Paul is saying, no, this, this is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I think this is what sets Christian, the Christian faith apart from other religions. Other religions might say, okay, here, here's the set of rules. Here's the laws. Here's the code of ethics. Now, do good and work your way up, right? Here, here is laws. Here's disciplines. Do these things and you can obtain you know, status or the deity or you can become like a god, whatever religion. The basic premise is kind of something along those lines. Do these things and you'll get this, right? Works-based. Works and Paul's saying this ministry, this mystery is not that one day you can be good enough, you can be disciplined enough, you can work hard enough to, to enter into the presence of God. Paul's saying something way more radical. That at the heart of the Christian faith is not you do good and then get God, but Christ is coming to you. And that's it. What do, we, what, what, do we, what do we do? What's our part to go up to God? It's, it's faith. It's to receive. It's to believe. It's to hold. It's to cling. It's to rest in Christ. He says Christ is the hope of glory. It's not some sort of wishful thinking. The hope of a Christian is the very presence of Christ, which is in them, with them. He, his personal presence, his relational union is, is with them. You don't work your way up to God. God comes to be with you and dwells with you. That is amazing grace. Christ is the hope of glory, the, the life of glory in the new heavens and the new earth. The hope of glorification is in Christ. This is what Paul wants to do. This is what he proclaims. This is what he centers this letter on. Look at what he says, verse 28. Him we proclaim. He's talking about Christ warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul doesn't just want to ha create Christians in the proclamation of his gospel message. He doesn't just want to make converts. His goal, his hope, his aim is maturity in Christ. That's why he works. And he doesn't, you know, it's not this kind of sort of lazy, half-hearted, pastors work one, one day a week kind of mentality. He says he toils, he struggles with all his energy. This is the effort that he's putting forward. But then notice what he doesn't say. And I work so hard. And look at me. <laughs> Man, I work hard. He says, I'm working hard, I'm toiling, I'm struggling with all the energy that Christ works within me. So even in all his hard work, he's giving the credit and the glory to God. He doesn't say, well, because of God's grace, he'll make up for my laziness. <laughs> we can do that, can't we? Cheapen the grace of God. View God's grace as a license. It's not what Paul's saying here. Nor does he say, it's all up to me, as it, it brings some sort of great sense of pride or burnout or despair when he can't do it. He knows that God's desire is to bring Christians to maturity and God has called him in it to share in this work. So he can work hard without the stressful motivation of fear or pride and he can become an example of maturity, of working hard, seeking under God's grace to minister 
but knowing that all of this imagery is from, from God. It's similar to, I think, what he writes in, in Corinthians, where he says, I am what I am by the grace of God. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any other of them. But it's not me, but Christ who is in me. Right? This, this dynamic, this relationship that doesn't quite make sense to us right? in the, in the natural realm of how grace and, and our effort and human responsibility work. But this is what Paul's saying. I'm providing the effort. Christ is supplying the energy. So in these short passages, these verses here, we see Paul is describing his ministry for the Colossians, right? He's in prison, but he's rejoicing in his suffering for the sake of the Colossians. And he's writing all of this. He's proclaiming the whole mystery of God, what was hidden in God, the word of God, Christ, that they may be warned and built up and mature in him. And all of this hard work that he's doing is not because he's so great or awesome. It's because Christ is in him and he's working, right? We see that, those kind of three main headers. He's suffering, but it's, he's rejoicing in the suffering. He's proclaiming Christ that everyone might be mature and he's working hard. He's laboring, he's struggling with the energy that Christ gives him. How about we apply this passage this morning? Maybe you've heard an application We've heard a sermon that if you were to apply these principles, the application of, of the sermon would be something like this. Paul rejoiced in his suffering. Why don't you do that? Paul works really hard. Why don't you do that? Work harder. Come on, guys. And it can become like a scolding. Anyone heard a sermon like this? Unfortunately, I've preached a sermon like this. <laughs> Paul worked hard. He did ministry with all his might. Stop being lazy. Paul accredited all his energy to what Christ provided. Stop working so hard and taking all the credit for yourself, you self-centered, prideful person. Look what Paul says, Colossians 1.25. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So picture, word of God fully known. What might we think of? The Old Testament prophecies, we might think now in our time that the whole Bible, you're making the whole word of God known. Then what does Paul say in verse 28? Him we proclaim. Isn't that fascinating? It's like he's saying Christ is the whole word of God. Or you preach the whole word of God and you preach Christ through it. For Paul, the content, the material, the focus of his preaching was Christ. It wasn't a message of behavioral modification. It wasn't a message of having the right behavior. It wasn't a call to morality or have the proper ethics. It was a call to Christ. It's what Paul's preaching. The center of his message was Jesus. And he's saying Jesus wasn't someone he talked about for people to become Christians. And then he moved on from Christ. He moved on from the gospel to explore deeper spiritual matters. So what Paul's saying here. We might think that. We might think the gospel, Jesus, he's kind of the first step in the faith. And after you step up that, then you have more progressions as you go up in faith or you mature in faith. This is perspective I had growing up in church. Yeah, yeah, gospel. I believe that. I'm a Christian now. But now, how do I mature? Do I work hard? Do I do these things? One pastor says that the the gospel, Christ is not the the first step in a stairway of maturity, but, but Christ is the hub in the wheel. In other words, we don't mature as we we move on from Christ. We move as we move deeper into Christ. As we learn more of Christ, as we see Christ in all of the scripture, we grow in our response to suffering. 
We grow in our response to rejoicing in suffering. We, we grow and we work hard for the sake of the gospel, not by having someone tell us to work harder, but by being more captured by Christ. Right? And it's, I think it's almost harder to command that. Because pastors, church leaders, can't force you to do that. Be captured by Christ, church. <laughs> How do we change the heart? You can change someone's behavior through fear and guilt and shame, can't you? Maybe we were parented like this. Maybe we parent like this. Fear of punishment or guilt or shame. But Paul is saying that the way that we grow and mature is by trusting in Christ, by believing Christ, by taking Christ and the gospel and applying it to areas of our life and our heart that, that it hasn't kind of plumbed the depths of our heart, if you will. You see the preeminence of Christ in all things. You begin to see more clearly that all things were created for Christ and by Christ. You begin to see suffering as a way, not as just physical discomfort, but a way to know Jesus better. You feel a kind of unshakable settledness, rest and peace, a deeper trust that, that if Christ is your hope of glory and you're in him and he's in you, nothing can take that away. Suffering in the circumstances of the world can only cause that trust to go deeper. Sickness and cancer, it becomes an opportunity to display and to receive the supremacy of Christ. Suffering in that sense becomes a grace. Financial loss becomes an opportunity to grow in our trust in Jesus as the Lord's grace, as he kind of weans you off dependence of financial things, our money, our possessions, our things. Persecution and being ostracized or outcast or canceled, being written off becomes an opportunity to display the patience and the grace and the mercy of Christ. So I pray, church family, as we seek to know this Jesus, that we would not have a kind of perspective where our content is shifted from Christ, that Christ is at the center of our content. And that as we seek to know him more, as, as Peter preached last week, that he is preeminent, that he is before all things, he holds all things, all things were made through him and for him, that our hearts would be more aligned with this Christ, that we would see everything in our life and, and our lives, our very lives themselves as I am made for Jesus and I am made by Jesus. And I want my life to reflect this and I want to show the difference that Jesus makes in my life, in my words, in my actions, in my posture towards others. And I pray that, that, that we would be continually captured by Christ that we would be moved from one degree of glory to another as we think about the wonderful grace of Christ. That the hope of glory is not something that we strive and grit our teeth and aim for. It is something that, that we receive by faith and is ours forever. The hope of glory, amen? Christ in you. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this book of Colossians, this book that elevates and glorifies Christ. Thank you for the reminder that we saw last week that, that Christ is preeminent, that he's before all things, that all things were made through Jesus and for Jesus. And Lord, I pray that, that as we look to your scriptures, as we seek to examine and 
consider the gospel and explore the, the comprehensive claims that the gospel has on our life, that, that as we are warned and taught in all wisdom, that we would mature in Christ, that we would reflect Christ in the way that we parent and work and serve and listen and love and speak. Lord, thank you for the work in which you have done that in this church. I, I have seen you, I have borne bore witness to the transformative power of Christ and Christ alone in this church. As he has the power to change and to save and to work and to make us more loving and kind and patient and good and gentle and merciful and gracious. So Lord, we praise you for your work. We thank you that it's not up to us. We do pray that with an understanding of your grace, that it would affect us and transform us. Pray that it would cause us to, to work and to toil and to strive in a, in a grace-filled way of, of seeking to share the love of Jesus with others. Pray you might continue to be glorified as we continue to worship you through communion and through song. And we trust that, that you are here with us. We praise you, Jesus, that, that you are in us and we are in you. And when we have you, we have hope. And you are our peace. And you are our strength. And you are our joy and our provision. And we praise you. We love you so much, Jesus. Pray that you're glorified as we sing to you now. In your name I pray. Amen.